Uh, please grab your Bibles once more, and would you open them up to Second Peter chapter three? And we're going to be reading verses one to ten this morning. And if you've got the New King James, you'll notice that verse 10 is also included in the next section there. We'll be reading it this week and next week, but I think there's a lot of overlap there, so we'll be keeping it within the reading today. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and and Saviour, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they fully forget, they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water, water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are preserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we seek to understand your word together this morning, we ask that you would once more work within us. We pray that we would not rest on our ability to to clever things out and reason things on our own, but that we would submit fully to you, to your word and to the Holy Spirit this morning, that you might grant us good, right and proper understanding that we might better live for you every day of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we read that, I read that at the start of the week and almost felt a sense of relief. And it reminded me of back when Anna and I used to live on the Sunshine Coast. Now occasionally, because I'm not a morning person, the good surf is in the morning, occasionally I'd go out for a bodyboard. And I was younger at the time, and like young fellas tend to do, I overestimated my ability on more than one occasion. And the waves were massive and... Because I was with my friends, I could never admit that it was too big. I was always scared growing up to duck dive. Now, duck diving is when you push down on the front of your board to go under the wave. Now, that's this really scary thing to try and do at first. But the more I did it, the more I loved it. When you duck dive under the wave for myself, it was just these amazing moments. There was danger. There were huge waves that were well beyond my ability to handle on my own. But you go underneath and you get this quiet, you get the distant pounding of the waves, but there's a sense of relief and then you come up on the other side of the wave and there's almost a sense of, of safety. Now what we've covered in 2 Peter, particularly chapter 2, looking at false teachers, to me feels a little bit like those big waves. 
there's really, really serious things out there. Things that we can't handle on our own that we need God to handle. And it's weighty things that we've dealt with. It's almost like we get to chapter 3 and we've duck-dived under that. God's helped us to dive under that wave. We're coming up the other side. The danger's still around. We know what to look out for, but now we begin to move into a sense of hope for the future. There's good things for those who love God. Yes, we must be wary. Yes, we must be aware of false teachers. But we see a little bit further than we did before. As we address these 10 verses this morning, uh, we're looking at it in three points. Firstly, we're seeing that, that there are scoffers coming and already here. Uh, secondly, we're seeing the evidence that's ignored. And thirdly, we see that the day of the Lord really is coming. Now, you might notice that this sermon's title is not alliterated this week. One, I was struggling with it. And two, Anna said, please don't alliterate for one week. Give us a break. So we haven't alliterated this week. But as we get into it, we, we, we see first the idea of scoffers uh, being a present uh, reality. And this really does follow on from the warning that has come from false teachers. So in some ways, we're past really dealing with false teachers in their fullness, but we can't disconnect this from what's come before. We're still in the same body of water. Those waves are still around, but we, we're not dealing with the exact same issue this time. And, and this warning about false teachers we remember is a really serious warning that we're given and it's serious because of the threat and also the the realness of dodgy teachers in the church it's a very serious threat to our spiritual growth and for some people it threatens to take them away from christ entirely before they ever get rooted in the word The severity, the all-around badness of false teachers may be felt, ever had us feel like there's just no way out there everywhere. It's too oppressive, but again, fortunately, that's not the case. Even as we dealt with false teachers, there were glimmers of hope through chapter 2. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to save the righteous. And that reference to Lot, who is living in those wicked, sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the Lord knew how to save Lot. In a lot of ways, Peter's writing to, to counter false teachers that people might grow in God, not false teachings. You can get to the end of chapter 2 and go, Peter's done everything that he needs to do. We can close the book there and just move on. But what I love about this is that it moves beyond that. In one sense, Peter's done his job. He's shown in chapter 1 those good things that Christians are meant to hold on to and grow in today. Chapter 2, these are the things to look out for. You can almost wrap it up there, but then chapter 3, we take a look towards the future. We look to the future. And as we look to the future, as we look to the things that are yet to happen... Just like we saw in chapter 1, there's an attitude presented here for Christians that we are not meant to be shrinking away from potential threats out of fear. This isn't because we are capable, but because we love, serve and are held on to by a great God, a mighty God who has saved us, who has called us out of darkness and called us, as we see in chapter 1, to the majestic glory of his presence. We have a God who grows us in our faith, who continues to equip us in our faith. 
Peter's reminding us of those things in this chapter. Now there's two ways we could read this book of 2 Peter, or lots of ways, but in terms of what we want to take out of it, we could read this and get nothing other than basic Christianity out of this. What do we need to know to be saved? What is? What do I need to hold on to to stand fast against threats? We can get those out of this, but Peter takes us deeper. He takes us deeper and he, in writing in deeper ways, reminds us that, that we should be exploring this in the depth that he's written it. And as we live every day, we should be exploring ways that we can further our service to God. Now, that might mean that we do more things with time that we might have up our sleeve, or maybe there's ways in which we're serving God now that we can do even better. But the growth in the Lord is present through all of this. We don't look to just get the bare minimum. We look to grow the most we can. So with all that in mind, we focus on chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And Peter brings a spotlight back onto what we can trust. Just like he did very clearly in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, where he showed us God's word, the, the, the prophet's writing, the prophet's prophecies. We can trust that because it came from one. We get to chapter 3, Peter once more brings a focus back to that. Peter wants us to be reminded and he works to remind us of what the prophets had to say. He does this because in every generation, the church, God's people, will need and do need to continue to hold on to those words spoken to the prophets to stand against opposition to the faith. That opposition can be false teachers. Or it can simply be people who mock Christianity. These aren't people who take on a teaching role within the church, who don't pretend to be teachers within the church, but they simply mock and they scoff at the message of the Bible. What Peter covers in chapter 3, he uses what one of my lecturers at Bible College encouraged me to have, but I never quite had, an economy of words. He says, without using many words, a whole lot of really helpful things. So when Peter, an evidence of that is Peter talked about scoffers. Scoffers will come, verse 3, scoffer, the scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying. Now in those words there, Peter is encapsulating both the false teachers and people who mock, but there is a, a shift in how he talks, so it's particularly focusing on people who just make fun of God. So the kids talk very, very foolish thing. And this is why Peter once more takes us back to the words of the prophets. The words of the prophets are so important in the face of this because these, this is God's revelation of himself to mankind. A trustworthy, perfect, infallible, in inerrant revelation of God. The God who created the world from nothing as we see in Genesis 1 and the God who will remain into eternity. just like some of the false teachers Peter seems to be deliberately focusing on. The scoffers are people who have an ability to avoid and a willful, a willful uh, 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 
willful, uh, willfully act in ways where they avoid and ignore things that are spiritual in nature. They are people who throw doubts and cast all sorts of aspersion onto the Christian faith. And one of the things that they pick up on, Peter points out for us today, they pick up on how long are you going to wait for God? How long are you going to wait for God to come again? You almost get this sense of if God, if Jesus was God in the first place, why isn't he back yet? And if he is God, what's the reason for the holdup? Where is he? Now that might seem like a a simple question for a scoffer to ask, but if you consider that from a Christian point of view, we long for the day of Christ's return. We long for the day of Christ's return because at that moment we are ushered into that eternal glory with him if we don't meet him first. At his coming again, all things will be made right. At his coming again, there will be worldwide acknowledgement that God really is God. Philippians chapter 2 says that when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that it's going to be an amazingly glorious event. And it's going to be heralded with, with trumpets and no one is going to miss it. But the scoffers ask, when's it going to happen? And they don't ask this out of a genuine desire to see the glorious return of Christ. They ask when. And they don't care what sort of doubts they sow in asking this question over and over again and hammering this sort of question over and over again. And the premise is God is not keeping his promises. Why do you trust him? If Christ has not come back yet, God has not kept his word, why do you trust him? If God cannot keep his promises, he is not God. Hebrews chapter 6, God cannot lie. This question, as flippant as it may sound to us, actually carries a lot of weight behind it. And I'm sure some of us have asked this question, not out of a mocking way, but out of a genuine way. How long... Will you allow this to continue, God? How long until you come back? We see the Psalms frequently use a sort of expression, How long, O Lord? We can't ask this question out of a genuine desire to see the Lord return. But the scoffers who are present, who Peter deals with, people who who we know, people who we wouldn't just refer to as people, people in our lives we could put names to, ask these questions. And it's almost an invitation to join them in their disbelief. Now, this passage is a relief, and you might not be feeling it right now. It may feel like we're basically just covering the stuff from chapter 2 in a slightly different way. Now, the reason we're doing that in this first point is because Peter is 
moving us on to a slightly different sort of person that we will encounter, as well as summarising his arguments of chapter 2 so we can move on to those things that Peter really wants us to focus on. We have to get the argument that's presented by the scoffers. Uh, Peter says will come. The argument is look around you. Look around you. Tell me what's changed. The fathers have died. Everything's still the same. The world keeps turning. We might look around the world today, they might say, and say, look, there's perhaps shifts in which continent seems to have the most conflict. But conflict is still lots of people not getting on. We have advancing technology. Aren't we clever to work to that end? But where's God in all of this? God hasn't done anything to change things. Apart from progress based on human intellect, the scoffers say, and our ingenuity, there's nothing different in the world than when our ancestors were alive. Why do you trust what you trust? This is at the heart of the scoffers' argument, of their mockery, of their foolishness. Now we could dismiss it, but I think Peter helps us to ask two questions. Does it have weight? And should it cause us concern in our continued trust in God and his promises? As we move into our second point, we see that there is a lot of evidence ignored, and I think we begin to answer those questions. Now, I used to do a little bit of sport coaching. I studied some of that at university. And one of the things I used to drill into the teams I was coaching was that the best defense is a good offense. Sometimes the best defense is a good defense. But sometimes the best defence is a good offence. doesn't apply to every situation, but in some ways I think it's a mentality that Peter picks up on in verses 5 to 7 this morning. See, Peter doesn't just sit back and just act as if these people are going to come, they're going to spout nonsense, just ignore it, it's all fine. Peter actually works to equip us to respond to their argument, and he actually gets right into the heart of their argument. Again, it's a short question they ask. It might seem simple, but the, the, there's a lot of weight behind what they're asking from their point of view. Peter equips us to respond to people in our lives today who, who, who scoff at the gospel. begins in verse 5. The argument, how long until Christ returns, assumes that that is the only thing that we as Christians have of God to hold on to for security in him. As if that is the only promise that God has made to us that we can have to trust on. It's not true, is it? The evidences, the reasons we have for trusting in God are far more than just the promised return of Christ. We long for that day. We can't wait to see that day where where sin is dealt with once and for all. We're unjust, get the deserves of their their behaviour, not because we don't like them, but because we love justice and holiness and righteousness. Peter works through reasons why we trust God. He points to the existence of the world itself. The fact that there is a created world is evidence that God exists. The truth is that there is a God who created all things. That God is the one, the only one who made the heavens and the earth.
we find ourselves in conversations sometimes, don't we, where we talk to people who deny the existence of God or that he could ever keep his promises. And sometimes giving a response is really, really tricky. But we have tools to respond to these scoffers. We can point them to creation itself. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 shows us how wonderful God's law is and how within creation itself there is nothing that is hidden from God's sight. Within creation itself we have a grounds by which we can respond to the existence of God. And through scripture we can respond to the character of God and we can share those things with people. Now maybe we prefer one or the other. And there's big arguments as you dive into these things as to which is the the more appropriate. These two schools really called presuppositional or classical apologetics, but that's a whole other topic for another time. Peter doesn't restrict us to one or the other. But what he says is that every person living in creation is living within the very thing that these scoffers are ignorant of. They reside within the proof of God. God who created out of nothing. This world that was shapeless and void was shaped by God to be the beautiful planet on which we all, believers and scoffers alike, enjoy. And maybe they say, nothing's changed since the time of our fathers insinuating God hasn't been active at all. But Peter tells us God has judged the world in the time of Noah. The people then denied God. They scoffed at Noah building his ark. Now, we might go, Noah built a boat and abbreviate the time of construction. But you read through Genesis, 100 years spent building that boat, trusting that God's promise of that flood would come. People mocked, people laughed, people thought that he'd lost his mind. But what God promised happened. And God promised that he wouldn't flood the world again, but there would be reserved for fire. There is still a judgment coming for those people who continue to scoff at the reality of God at the glorious truth of God, at the glorious truth of Christ's glorious return. See, for scoffers to continue in scoffing, they ignore an enormous weight of evidence of the existence of God, that God works, that God loves his people, that God protects his people, as we can all give testimony to through various things that we've gone through in our lives. We face these things and perhaps you're hearing me say it's easy to just deal with these things. I'm not saying it's easy to deal with these things. The weight of these arguments often comes against us with the full weight of the movements of society against us. Maybe it just comes against us as a grumpy neighbour over the fence who heard you're a Christian and just can't stand that and want to keep on tearing strips off where they can or where they think they can. But we need to remember that, as Peter points out, there is an ignorance of the scoffer. That they deliberately, willfully overlook 
that God made the world, that God works in the world, that God keeps his promises. And as we interact with people who do scoff God, in some ways I hope and pray that we do have those opportunities to interact with them. May we find ways in those interactions to show God, to point them to the truth of God that their souls might be saved. Before our very eyes, in creation itself, we have evidence of a mighty God who can keep his promises. And this undeniable evidence is ignored by scoffers. We need to be careful to not get sucked into that. Now, thirdly, we do see that the day of the Lord is coming. As we look at verses 8 to 10, you might notice a bit of a similarity if you've read through the passage a few times now, between verses 5 and verse 8. Verse 5 talks about people who willfully forget. Verse 8, do not forget. The believer willfully forgets for the Christian. The unbeliever rather willfully forgets, but for the Christian, do not forget. Do not forget this one thing. And then Peter goes on to seemingly reference Psalm chapter 90, verse 4. And what should we not forget? That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That's Psalm which Peter seems to reference, it's not a direct quote, but it's a very strong reference, it says, For a thousand years in your sight, but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Peter's capturing the essence of Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, right there. Now, I think some people have misused that Psalm 90, verse 4, to apply it to the creation account. I don't think there's grounds for that, but again, that's a topic for another time. It is commonly used there today. But what we see here is that for God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. See, Peter's spoken before about the judgment coming, the swift destruction coming to the false teacher. And Peter talks about Slackness or perhaps slowness of God's return here in these verses, particularly verses 8 and 9. See, Peter knows that we often tend to think about things from our own little perspective, where we are not God, and one day is one day, and a thousand years is a thousand years, and it often feels longer. Even a day feels long sometimes. So perhaps we feel like God's dragging his feet, but for God who is not bound by the confines of time... We can't just immediately say, God, you're being slow. For this reason, Peter says that God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. When I was at university, one of my, um, one of my highlights of the week was me and some of the guys would go and we'd get a very nutritious lunch of hot chips from the cafeteria once a week. Now, one of our friends always happened to have no money on him. 
This happened. He never had money on him. And they'd always say, I'm good for it, I'll pay you back. And he worked more than any of us. We knew he was good for it. And it was very frustrating sometimes. When are you going to pay us for the chips we bought you? It might not sound like much, but we're uni students. A few dollars is a lot of dollars. He just wouldn't sort it out. Maybe as we look to the return of Christ, we've felt a little bit like this. This is God who can do everything other than sin. This is God who has promised that Christ will return. This is God who, as my mate would say, he's good for it. Why are we still waiting? Why has Christ not returned already? We know and we trust that God is good for it. So what's the holdup? I'm sure we've felt that in good times sometimes. But imagine you were actually in those conversations. I'm sure we've had with scoffers who say, there's no way Jesus would ever come back again. In Australia, we often cop teasing for our faith, but that's about as far as it goes most of the time. And we pray that it doesn't go further, that we actually might be safe from persecution. But there are genuinely persecuted Christians around the globe. We read accounts of pastors being stripped naked and beaten in front of their families. We read accounts of people being killed simply for professing faith in Christ. If I was in those situations, I would be wanting Jesus back now. Just put an end to this. The teasing alone that we often face feels bad enough, but let alone the extent of persecution many of our brothers and sisters around the world face. Why has Christ not come back again? I think we only focus on the negative of waiting. And we live today in an age where we just don't wait. Everything is instant. I think, I think there's actually a really, really wonderful positive in God's patience. The purpose for waiting is not because God is dragging his feet. It's not because God is unable It's not because God now has questions as to whether he will fulfill his promise. It's not because God's not being faithful. We see here today, in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So rather than be frustrated by waiting, there is a goodness of the waiting. There is a goodness of God's long-suffering revealed there by Peter. It's hard to wrap our heads and our hearts around that sometimes when we just want what we want. But there is a goodness to God's waiting. God does not wish for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, obviously, that's one of those verses which has caused all sorts of debate among Christians over the year. What does God mean there? I think it's clear from what we've read through this letter that the all, 
is not a generic everyone, but a specific group of people. The reason I say that is that Peter has spoken extensively. He's spent a whole chapter talking about the severity of the judgment facing those who are false teachers and for those who follow false teachers, and seems to extend that today into those who would mock the truth of God. Those people will not be entering into eternal life with God. That is a terrible thing, but it is there is just deserves for their sin, that there will be an eternity in hell, separate from the graces of God for all eternity for these people. The all that we see there is very similar to what we read in John's Gospel. As all those who the Father has given the Son will remain with the Son forever, having received that bread of life. When we see this patience of God, as much as we might not want to receive God's patience, we should be thankful and amazed that God is patient. Because God is patient, because God is patient, we have received salvation by the internal work of the Holy Spirit, made possible by the price that Christ paid on the cross according to the Father's will. If God had not been patient, I do not think anyone here in this room would have been saved from sin. Rather than be annoyed that God might seem to be taking his time, we should be thankful that God is long-suffering. His timing is not our timing, but his timing is good. His timing is perfect. And in his patience, he's not sitting back and doing nothing. Souls are being saved. All those who belong to him are being called out of darkness to himself. All those who are called out of darkness, called to his majestic glory, are being called to that that place of repentance, that, that place where the Spirit leads us to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge our woeful inadequacy, our woeful deficiencies before God, and place our faith in Jesus because we realize he and he alone can do the work that we needed to do. And if God is working in his long-suffering. What are we doing? See, we can complain. I know I'm better at complaining than I should be. We can complain that God is taking too long. Or, or, we can use the time that God has given us now We can invest in seeing the church, the bride of Christ, being able to be presented mature at Christ's return. There are so many ways we can work towards this happening. We can participate in Bible studies. We can meet with people one-on-one. We're entering a time of year where we won't have as many midweek things happening as families support other families. 
Show hospitality, show generosity, open God's word together. They're all ways that we can spend the time well. It's not just about inside the church either. There are scoffers, there are people who don't know the love of God. We should be asking ourselves, do we want people to know the salvation that we know? Do those things with your church family. Build up the body of Christ. Encourage one another towards holiness. But also talk to people who currently claim nothing to do with God. We know these people. I've stressed that a few times. We know these people. They're not just this abstract group of people who don't like Christianity. We know these people. We know their names. We know their families. We have relationships with these people. The big question isn't so much, do we know them? The big question seems to be, do we love them enough to share the gospel while God is being patient? And while God is being patient, remember what we read in verse 10. God's patience will not last forever. We should not always put this off until tomorrow. Those opportunities will end, and when they end, they will end quickly. Jesus' return, which again we long for so much, will come like a a thief in the night. Not so much in its quietness as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again, but in terms of its unannouncedness. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it will happen. With a roar, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Then they will melt into this dissolved state, it seems to be this picture Peter's putting forward here. There will be complete exposure of everything done on earth. So we should pray and commit ourselves to doing those things that please God, to doing those things that build up the church, to doing those things that are based on his word and endeavour to see his name praised across all the earth in every tribe and every language. Let's use the time that God in his kind, divine patience and mercy has given us. The scoffers think that God's patience is reason to mock. We should see God's patience as reason to rejoice with thankfulness that we can serve him in ways we maybe even haven't considered yet. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray that we might be attentive to it, not just now, but as we go out from here. We pray that we would rejoice and be thankful and amazed by your patience. May we not be frustrated that you have not yet returned, but may we be thankful that you have given us more opportunities to serve you here on earth. We pray that you might use each one of us to encourage our brothers and sisters in you. And we also pray that you would use us to reach those lost souls, that through your equipping us to do this, your spirit might save unconverted souls, that your name might be glorified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.